John chapter 17, and as I mentioned last Sunday night and also this morning, we're going to be in John 17 for a while, and uh, told uh, Brother Dan that uh, it'll probably be the leaves falling off the trees before we get out of uh, John chapter 17, uh, so uh, going to be a long summer. Well, uh, probably not as long as we'd like it to be sometimes. By the way, Wednesday's the first day of summer. Summer's not even here yet. But uh, it'll be Wednesday. And longest day, shortest night, all that kind of stuff. So John chapter 17, we're just going to look at verse 4 and 5 tonight. Talk about the finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ in John chapter 17. It says in verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Uh, what do you think about when you hear the word salvation? Well, such a word can bring to mind various thoughts, ideas, and convictions. Uh, to some, it refers to a deliverance from the cycle of endless karma. Uh, to others, it means the idea of social upheaval or moral change. Others might even think it is some in Christian circles consider salvation to be more of a self-improvement, self-fulfillment, a happiness in life. And just because someone mentions the idea of salvation does not mean they understand the biblical teaching on the subject. And so it is essential that we grasp what salvation involves. Let's take that just a bit farther. What do you believe concerning how a person receives or experiences salvation? Again, there are all kinds of ideas ranging from moral change to doing works of charity to observing religious rituals to being a good person. And yet none of these things brings a person into a biblical experience of salvation. This brings us to the heart of the text here. The gospel is found in these two verses that we just read. Jesus is praying to the Father as the mediator between God and sinners. And he states, of course, as we said this morning, the hour has come, uh, which uh, we have seen refers to the event of his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. John typically views all of these together in the gospel. And Jesus has described eternal life as a relationship uh, with the Father and the Son. And so he goes back to the roots of salvation. How can those who are at enmity with God be brought into a right relationship with God, a relationship which God calls eternal life salvation? The answer to this question is found in the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what God in Christ has done to save sinners. It's not a record of what man has done to bring about his own salvation. Those two ideas are completely poles apart. And we must examine our hearts to make sure that we're not trying to add to what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. Some are denying the sufficiency of Jesus Christ without realizing it by adding something to salvation other than what Christ has done. So Jesus Christ completed the work of salvation that we cannot in the least add to it. And how is this so? Well, notice first of all a work given to the Son. The work, a work given to the Son. Salvation is not man's idea. 
Uh, when you go back to the book of Genesis, you take a look at the first humans. Uh, you uh, do not find them groping for salvation. Adam and Eve were placed in a perfect setting in the Garden of Eden. God had given them one prohibition, and that was not to eat of the tree of good and knowledge. Now we know the story and how the serpent tempted Eve, and she succumbed to his shrewdness by viewing the sin of eating the forbidden fruit as something which would be pleasurable to her. Uh, It would elevate her to the level of God. And so she gave to Adam, and both did eat, losing their natural righteousness and breaching the righteous law of God. Condemnation fell upon them and upon all humanity. For in in, uh, Adam, Adam represented the entire human race. And when Adam fell, we all fell. All of humanity sinned by Adam and therefore all must die under the wrath of God in Adam. That's uh, given to us very clearly in the book of Romans. Now interestingly, you do not see Adam and Eve seeking salvation or deliverance from the curse of their sin. They tried to actually do what? They tried to hide from God. They tried to hide. They tried to cover up their sin. They tried to excuse their sin. It was God himself who sought them out to deliver them from their sin and bring them back into a relationship to himself. And we must understand that salvation is always initiated by God. Romans 3.11 reminds us, There is none righteous, no, not one. And the depravity of our hearts drives us away from God, not to him. Unless God himself takes action, sinners will perish according to their own desires. And we must see that salvation is a work which the Father purposes before he created the world. And so it might be, it, so it might be all of God and not uh, of man, but it might be all of his glory. Notice as we talk about the work given to the Son, we notice the first of all the purpose of the work. Again, here in verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. What kind of work did the Father give the Son to do? Well, to understand this puts us right in the heart of salvation, grasping the gospel, and uh, some background perhaps is necessary here. But when God created the world, he did so with all the radiance of his perfections. Man was created in the image of God, so he was sinless. He was perfect in his desires, pure in his imaginations, righteous in his nature, with a capacity of making moral choices. He was not made to be a robot, but he was a living soul. He was not just flesh and bones, but he was a spiritual being. Even as God himself is a spiritual being. And out of the dust of the ground, God formed the physical being of man. Out of his own divine breath, he breathed life into man, imparting to him the spirit, him spirit, so that man is both body and soul. Now, one from the dust by God's hand, the other from being of God himself by God's breath. So the first man stood in moral perfection, righteousness, able to commune with God freely and openly. And then sin entered into the world. Spiritual death came with that sin. This perfect and righteous creature forfeited the purity of his relationship with God, the holiness of his nature by violating God's law, disobeying God. 
His nature was corrupted with sin so that he fell from a state of righteousness and entered a state of depravity. Every part of his being was affected by this sin. And tragically, he could not mend his relationship with God, nor did he even desire to do so. His nature began to crave the idolatrous things of the world. His only hope for reconciliation with God and a moral change in his nature was for God himself to take redemptive action on behalf of Adam and his race. Now, none of this caught God off guard. He did not create man and find himself shocked that man would fall. In the wisdom of God, he created man perfect, a perfect moral creature, and in his providence, he allowed man to fail. And this placed man under God's wrath and judgment because of the breach of sin, which was an offense directly against the holy character of God. Now, why did God allow all this to happen? So that he might display his glory by showing forth his mercy and his grace in Jesus Christ to those whom he would redeem. He is glorified by redeeming the sinner. And he's glorified by judging the rest of the world for their sin against him. Again, Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And so God gave his son a work to do. And that only uh, as a work that he could do. Uh, and God's glory would be displayed throughout the universe for all eternity. This work involved reconciliation between God and man. Man's relationship with God was broken by that first sin. And it was not just a little problem. It was an infinite separation between God and man. And so the purpose of the work of the Father that he gave to the Son was relational. It was the, the purpose was to bring about a reconciliation of God with sinful man. Secondly, we notice the demand for the work. The demand. Man's sin demanded his, this work by the Son of God. Now, not that man himself came up with this idea. He didn't come up with a redemptive idea. Uh, man couldn't demand that God do something to correct his problem. No, the nature of man's spiritual condition of enmity with God demanded that the Son do his work if man was to be righteous before God. This is humanity's only hope. All humanity is under the condemnation that was brought about by the fall. None of us has escaped. We all stand guilty before God. We all justly face the severe judgment of God. Our natures are corrupt and sinful, bent on rebellion against God. And once we become old enough to choose right from wrong, we demonstrate, every one of us, that we're going to follow our sinful nature in choosing to disobey the law of God. So, in a sense, we stand doubly condemned by nature and by choice. 
And because of this, we are hopelessly lost. We are hopelessly separated from God. And a spiritual time bomb, so to speak, is waiting to explode under the judgment of God. Now, some people think that, you know, if you can just get a person to go to church, and if you can just get a person to start living right, then everything's going to be okay. There's many, many people that have gotten to church and they've died in their sin and gone to an eternity in hell. There's many people that have been good, moral people, but they're still sinners and they need to be saved. You see, these things cannot change the man, a man's nature, nor can it deliver him from the condemnation before a holy God. Man is a lawbreaker, and as such, he deserves the severity of divine judgment. And as one whose character is just, God must level his holy wrath upon the sinfulness of man. He has established his law for man to obey, a law which is the reflection of his moral character. And just as Adam disobeyed the one law established for him in the Garden of Eden, we disobey the ten moral laws that God has given us. God's nature is so pure and so holy that for us to break even one law puts us in a position of offending his character and deserving eternal punishment. And as a righteous, just God, we must exercise judgment upon us for the sinfulness of our natures, the consequence of disobedience that we display. Now, we also know that God is full of love and mercy. Uh, he, de- he desires to show forth his grace to undeserving sinners. And thank God for that. And yet God's actions never contradict his essential being and his character. And You know, uh, by this I mean, in very simple terms, God cannot just sweep sin under some cosmic rug and just forget about it. No, you've never done that, right? Cleaned the house and just swept the dirt under the rug or thrown something in the corner where it can't be seen. But God can't do that. He's a holy God. His character will not allow him to do that. He cannot justly declare a man to be forgiven of his sin without some divine retribution upon that sin. You see, God's justice demands that he punish every sinner. You say, I wish God wasn't like that. Wouldn't it be nice if God would just forgive without any kind of justice taking place? Listen, you would not want a God like that. He would be a wishy-washy, changing from day to day with no unchanging character and no uncalculated actions. If God was not immutable, that is unchanging in his character and his actions, you would be in a constant state of worry, anxiety, and doubt. Now, I know some people that are, that's the way they live. We had neighbors in Indiana who lived like that. They never quite knew if they were going to make it to heaven. In fact, they thought that everything was like a scales, and if you did enough good works to outweigh your bad works, you might, you just might make it. 
And it's a, not something we can just pin on a certain group of people. But it's this, this way across the world in many, way, in many ways. You see, you would not know what God was going to do if we had a God like that. We would not know how he was going to act. But listen, the God of creation is not like this. He gave his son a work to accomplish to bring about the redemption and reconciliation of sinners. And it was a planned thing. Every detail of unfolding of history, the fullness of times in Christ's coming, the ministry of Christ, the passion of Jesus Christ, all of it was divinely planned for the salvation of sinners. We have a work given to the Son. We've looked at the purpose and the demand for the work. Notice a work accomplished by the Son. Look again at verse 4. It says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Jesus declared to the Father the task of redeeming sinners was given to the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. The Father planned and purposed His redemptive work. The Son accomplished it by the righteous life and death and His resurrection on our behalf. And the Holy Spirit applies it in the regenerating and sanctifying power of the, to the sinner. The Godhead is involved in the work of saving sinners. Peter expressed it like this, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. You have all three persons of the Godhead involved there. And so as we look at a work accomplished by the Son, first of all, it's a demonstration of His love. The Father is glorified in what Jesus Christ has done. All that Jesus did on this earth displayed the infinite love and mercy of God towards sinners. Imagine that one who was infinitely offended by man's sin showed infinite love and mercy to the ones who offended him. Now, we would think that someone was magnanimous if they showed mercy to a thief who had robbed them. We thought, well, that's, that's just unheard of. Here's a man who robbed me of all my, uh, of my precious goods, and I'm supposed to be nice to him? And yet that's what God was to us. Now, in this case, it's the whole race of humanity that's broken every law of God, blasphemed his holy name, worshipped vain idols, spurned over every over, overture of his love, rebelled against his kindness, turned away from his holiness. And it's to this human race that God has come in love and mercy. And the first thing that Jesus did toward our redemption was become a human being. Never a time when Jesus Christ had not been God. But there was a time when he was not man. He became man. He was born of a virgin, born in time. Uh, He who is infinite became subject to time and all the limitations of humanity, yet without sin. 
there was a, no confusion of the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus. It was not a mixing of these two natures, but a totality of the divine and a totality of man together in one person, Jesus Christ. And one and the same time, he was both holy God and holy man. Do you believe that? I hope you do. You see, I agree with the statement that if a person does not believe this truth concerning Christ, I don't believe he can be saved. You've got to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. He's the one that paid the price for your sin. He's the only one that could have done it. And so you've got to believe that he was holy God and holy man in order to really trust him as your savior. To reject the deity and the humanity of Jesus is to deny the teaching of scripture, deny the necessity of the incarnation for our salvation. As a man, Jesus Christ would suffer wrath due to man for his sin. Deity cannot suffer divine wrath, so it was necessary for the Lord to to take on humanity. And just as Adam represented humanity in the fall, Jesus Christ became man's representative before the wrath of God. Being God gave infinite, eternal value to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. Now this means that Jesus would suffer once and for all on behalf of all who would be saved. The writer of Hebrews expresses this very clearly. In Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, it says, Wherefore he that cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book written of me to do thy will, O God. And then in verse 10, it says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for, once for all. Verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And so we have a demonstration, a very clear demonstration of his love in our behalf. Secondly, we have a satisfaction of his justice. The cross of Jesus Christ, this work he said that he accomplished in all his sufferings, would make no sense without understanding something of the judicial aspect of our salvation. Let me take, for instance, uh, we talk about judicial matters. If you were involved in a judicial matter at the U.S. District Court in downtown Madison, I think we could probably say that a law had been broken. (laughs) You were called to be involved in that. Someone had broken a law. And so justice must be rendered in order to satisfy the breaking of the law. You see, the one who broke the law upon rendering a guilty verdict would have to suffer the consequence of breaking that law. And this sort of action is necessary for our society to maintain a semblance of justice, order, and morality. We have all had a sense of moral outrage whenever a criminal or a lawbreaker 
does not have to suffer the consequence of breaking the law, haven't we? You see people getting away with breaking the law, going allowed to go free. When that happens, there's usually an outpouring uh, from society at large for justice. In other words, a crime was committed, a person was guilty for the crime against the stated laws of our society, so for justice to be served, he must be punished. Or then it becomes an injustice. And so the work which the Father gave Jesus to do involved a satisfaction of God's justice. The law had been broken. First by Adam as a representative of humanity and then by Adam's posterity and breach of the Ten Commandments and other laws that God had established. Can God, who reigns supreme over the universe in an unapproachable light, that is His holiness, be just while letting lawbreakers go free without being punished for their crime? Listen, the holy, righteous character of God is at stake in the punishment of sinners. And because of who God is in his being, his character, his office, he cannot let sin escape unpunished. David expressed it like this in Psalm 37, 37. Mark the perfect man. I used to have a student whose name was Mark. He said, there, that's me. <laughs> Mark the perfect man. No, means to take note of him or or uh, give uh, notice of the perfect man. Mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. Now is anybody perfect? No, there's only one man that was perfect, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us would uh, qualify for being perfect, but perhaps the idea of maturity or uh, righteousness is, in, is uh, in mind there too. But then he goes on in verse 38, says, but the transgressor shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalm 37 has a lot to say about the wicked being cut off. Isaiah adds this in Isaiah 1, verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness and the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together and they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. You see, Jesus Christ now became the satisfaction for God's justice when he bore our sins on the cross. Just as Isaiah prophesied of him, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered among the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many, and made intercession for transgressors. You see, our Lord did this work at the Father's pleasure to satisfy divine justice. And it was necessary for God to be able to justly pardon sinners while at the same time punishing their sins. And so you see, pardon for sinners. Why do we need a pardon? Well, we dare not take our chances at the judgment of God. For we are all lawbreakers deserving God's judgment. It says in Romans 3.19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that who are under the law, that every mouth shall may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. The word accountable, uh, or become, uh, the word there uh, concerns uh, being accountable, liable to judgment or punishment. The law of God stands as his holy standard for all humanity. We have broken his laws. And yes, we've broken all of his laws. 
You say, I haven't broken all of them. Remember what James said? James 2.10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So every last one of us is guilty of breaking all of God's laws. We deserve the full measure of his wrath against sinners, and we desperately need a pardon, don't we? And God cannot pardon without justice. That would contradict his character again, and as we have already seen. And through the substitutionary death of Christ as the propitiatory sacrifice, he can forgive all of our transgressions and pardon us for our iniquities. Romans 3.24 says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. God can pardon because Jesus Christ has satisfied his justice through his bloody death on the cross. It's a just pardon. Because the crimes of our breaking God's law were fully paid in the person of Jesus Christ. But there's also punishment for sins. As we have pardon as sinners because Jesus Christ received the punishment for our sins. And that is what is meant by the statement here, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. All the pronouncements of Mount Sinai against sinners were fulfilled at Golgotha for those who have faith in Christ. The arrow of God's wrath was aimed at you. Now it's been aimed and hurled at God's own Son. I would dare say perhaps most, if not all, of you have trusted that uh, tonight. You've, you've got uh, things in order there. But my question is, have you trusted the God-man, Jesus Christ, and his perfect, satisfying work on your behalf? Have you truly repented of your own way of life? Have you turned from your sin? Have you cast yourself wholly upon the prophet, priest, and king of salvation, Jesus Christ? Have you, being pardoned of your sin, tried to assume some and claim some credit for that pardon? Or have you looked to yourself or your abilities or your efforts or your service to a better to better your position before God? Do you have an eye upon yourself and your own failures so that you're living in condemnation before God? while failing to set your eyes singularly upon Jesus Christ and his satisfaction for your sins. Notice lastly the glory deserved by his son, or by the son. We see this in verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now what did Jesus mean by this request? Well, First of all, there's a finality of the work of salvation. Now, he's already stated that he had glorified thee on earth. That is, Jesus had done everything that the Father told him to do. And there was not one moment that he disobeyed. There was not one failure in the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan that Jesus left undone. He had done all 
his work. So now he was ready to return to that exalted position at the Father's right hand. And we not, must not just slide across this, stru- this truth. For Jesus Christ has truly finished the work if he has truly done all that is necessary to save sinners then why would we consider our own merits and our own performance as necessary to bring us into a right relationship with God? How can you think that anything you do, whether a decision you make, a prayer you pray, or walking down the aisle, or being baptized, how can any of this add to what Christ has already accomplished? And I point this out because so many have the idea, if I just pray the prayer, or if I just walk an aisle, that'll save me. No, Christ alone saves by the grace he gives due to the work he has accomplished. I think there are multitudes who have bypassed trusting in Christ and his merits for a substitute, for a substitute of repeating a prayer that someone else or raising their hand. They believe that because they have done these things, they're saved. You're saved only because of what Christ has done. That saving work is applied to you only when you turn from your own self-righteousness, your self-trust, your sin, and trust Jesus Christ as your prophet, priest, and king. Trust in what Christ has done for you on the cross. Affirmed by his resurrection. That's all that's necessary. Secondly, there needs to be a recognition of the exalted God-man. When Jesus Christ became God incarnate, it was permanent. When he ascended back to heaven, he did not get de-incarnated. If you can use that word. He didn't just leave his humanity on earth. No, he returned to heaven as the exalted God-man. He who is fully man, though fitted for eternity, sets bodily at the right hand of the Father. And so Jesus' prayer is that the same glory that he had before he came to earth, he now desires as God incarnate. What Adam lost, Jesus Christ restored, the glory of God in man. And then thirdly, a declaration of the essential glory of our Redeemer. For the Father to restore the glory which our Lord laid aside in his humanity. Now he did not lay aside his deity, remember that. But for the Father to restore the glory which he had laid aside is to declare that all the perfections of God, all of his righteousness, all of his justice, all of his goodness, all of his wisdom had to be displayed in the death, resurrection, and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now all of those perfections of God and the radiance of his attributes will be plainly viewed in the exalted humanity of Jesus Christ. And that's why we are able to behold his glory in heaven as we find down in verse 24 father i will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where i am that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me jesus christ is worthy of our praise he's worthy of all of our honor he's worthy of our submission he's worthy of our worship for he's full of glory as the obedient son our redeemer 
Now there are two ways to view this study of God's Word. First of all, if you're a believer, you should have a better glimpse of the worthiness of Jesus Christ, the absolute sufficiency of His work, the amazing grace shown to you by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's an assurance for you in going back to what Christ has done and the Holy Spirit has applied within you. And we need to rest in that assurance. We need to take our eyes off our own righteousness and we need to come and cling only to Christ. The second thing that I think we need to take from this passage is that if you're not a believer tonight, then you have been confronted by the law of the gospel. The law exposes your heart as a sinner, justly deserving God's eternal condemnation. But the gospel is the good news that God himself has taken on your guilt, your punishment, so you might be pardoned justly, declared to be righteous before him. Now, how could anyone pass up that good news? And I trust that if there's someone here that is still lost in their sin, that they will repent of their sins, coming and trusting only in Jesus Christ as your Redeemer. Now, I'm going to give you the challenge one more time. Read the chapter each week. Read the whole chapter each week. Pray for this preacher to proclaim the text with authority. Pray for our church to see what the Lord has given us and walk in it faithfully. Let's pray.